Well, for our Bible time, we are continuing in our journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, we have come to chapter 12, and in chapter 12, we are at the beginning of the last week of the ministry of Jesus. If you were to look at your Gospel of John, you might notice there are 21 chapters, and so there's a reminder. Uh, nearly a half of the book is given to the last week of his life. And that's the sort of thing that reminds us, and that's John's way of telling us, that's where the important stuff happens. You know, when you, when you read a, uh, a biography, often that's the kind of thing you notice is where is the focus. And sometimes, uh, I'll read a, I love reading biographies, and I'll, I'll, I'll read a biography, and sometimes I'll be amazed at how little attention is given to the formative years of life, and you have to really look closely. Where did they go to school? What, were the, what was their family life? Because... You know, they want to get on to the big stuff. What impact did they have and why? Well, John does that for us as well when he says the most important thing in Jesus' uh, ministry on earth is in that last week. And that really points to the cross. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Well, we are at chapter 12, and uh, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read. Our text today will be chapter 12. Verse 20 through 26. Now, there were certain Greeks among them, among those who came up to the worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Honestly, as you read that, if you haven't looked at this passage recently, uh, it, it can be a little, how does this all fit together? What's he saying? What's going on here? Well, hopefully we can shed some light on that as we open up this text together. Let me just remind you, the most recent passage we looked at, our previous passage in John, was uh, the Palm Sunday passage. The passage when Jesus came to Jerusalem and they came out with the palm branches. He rode the donkey into town. Uh, the glorious, it's been called the triumphal entry or, or Palm Sunday or however you want to describe it. That's what has just happened. Uh, now, remember, there are four Gospels, and, and those four Gospels are like four witnesses. And they each complement each other by filling in the details of the account. Uh, the other Gospels will tell us what happened between Palm Sunday and the passage where we are. And I thought maybe it would be helpful to look at the Gospel of Mark briefly, a couple of verses, uh, starting in chapter 11, verse um, 12 through 17. This will give us some uh, some fill-in leading up to our event. Now the next day, so that would be if, if Palm Sunday was the previous context, 
Now think hard. The next day would be Monday. Good, you're thinking. All right. So now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you, fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of thieves. Now this passage in Mark, we won't develop it now, but there's that interesting thing where the... So here we are on Monday. Jesus is approaching, coming from Bethany, where they're staying in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now he's coming into Jerusalem again. He went... Uh, on the Palm Sunday into Jerusalem, looked around, came back. Now he's going down for another visit. So this is the, the day after Palm Sunday. And there's that interesting situation at the fig tree. He comes up to the fig tree. There's no fruit, and so he curses it. And we might want, and, and we're even told it wasn't the season for fruit, but we might wonder, what's that all about? Is he that hungry that he's going to get angry at a fig tree? Now, this is one of those teaching moments. It's, it's a parable. He is coming to Jerusalem looking for the fruits of faith and repentance from the nation of Israel. But he will find no fruit. And so this is the time when the nation is rejecting Jesus. And so the fig tree is an example of that. As that fig tree came under judgment for lack of fruit, so the nation of Israel is about to come under judgment for the lack of the fruit of faith and repentance in Christ. Matter of fact, 40 years after this, uh, Jerusalem will be decimated by the Romans. And, and he will even predict in his sermon on the Mount, or sermon on the uh, Mount of Olivet, that not one stone of the temple will be left standing upon another. So as we are in this context, he's, he's, he's showing, I'm coming to a nation without the fruits of faith and repentance. That kind of sets the tone as he goes into town. He came into Jerusalem and he, and, he, and he cleansed the temple. So Sunday morning he'd come in and looked around. And remember this is the season of Passover. And we, we, we'll see in our context that, that pilgrims have been coming from all over Israel and many parts of the world. Uh, the coming to gather to worship for the Passover. It's a week-long cere- uh, ceremony. Passover followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so this is one of the times where three times a year the, Jewish, the Jews were to come to Jerusalem and worship. Jerusalem would be flooded with people, some two million or more, maybe three million people in a, in a small area coming to worship, but coming from all over. And so we're told that Jesus came in to the, the comes down the Mount of Olives, goes into the temple, and there's what we call a, a cleaning of the temple, the driving out of the money changers and, the, and the, the animals. John doesn't record that event, but he does record when Jesus did it before. If you read the Gospels together, you'll see that he did this twice. 
At the beginning of his ministry, John records how Jesus came and drove out the money changers and the animals. And the other gospels show how he did it now, at, this, at the end of his ministry. What a mess it was. Remember, this is the Passover. The place is packed with people. If ever you've seen pictures of the Temple Mount, uh, especially during uh, Ramadan or some of the other festivals, when many Muslims are up on the Temple Mount, it is packed, and there might be maybe a couple hundred thousand people. Usually it seems very packed, and there's a hundred thousand people there. Imagine two million. Well, take that Temple Mount then and cover it with how many sheep will be offered during Passover. And I've mentioned before, and, and there was, if you brought an offering, they had it worked out that you couldn't bring, you had to bring, you had to use temple currency. If ever you've traveled, you go through that sometimes. Your perfectly good currency isn't expected, accepted in another country. So you have to change it. Well, if you're going to bring, come to the temple with your Roman money, you have to change it to temple money. And if you're going to offer a sacrifice at Passover, and that's what it's all about, offering the Passover lamb, you need a priestly approved lamb. And so you had to come and buy them typically in the town. So that, what they should have been doing is doing that out in the marketplace in the city, but, and some of that was going on. But right there in the temple courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles, was filled with these animals to, for purchase. And I, when I've mentioned it before when we talked about this, the only way I can think of it is think of it a, of a feedlot. If they've ever driven by where a feedlot where they're uh, feeding and, and growing beef before they're processing, you can tell when you're approaching. If your windows are down, you can tell you're approaching a feedlot. I'm reminded of the time... Uh, a pastor was a young pastor and had gone over to Fort Worth. Dr. Walvard, who was a formerly president of Dallas Seminary, he and his wife were going to be pastoring a little church there in Fort Worth. And, and this was many years ago. The windows were open and all of a sudden the wind changed. And Mrs. Walvard said, what is that smell from all the stockyards? One of the mature ladies in the church said to her, that is the smell of money. And we like it. <laughs> and so she, note to self, get used to this. But it isn't the smell of worship. And so what Jesus did was he said, that you have defiled the temple precincts by turning it in, first of all, to a marketplace and then to a feedlot. And so he drives it all out. And he says, you, what you've done it's, isn't it written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? See, in the temple, there was an area where only the Jews could go. The temple, only a Jew could go into the temple to worship. And there were different parts where the Jewish men could go, but only the priests would go into these other areas. The Gentiles, there was a special court where they could only get so close. But there was a place where they could go and worship at a distance there on the temple mount. That was the place they took over for their feedlot. And so Jesus drives them out and said, this is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. In other words, the, the Gentiles have a right to come and worship here as well. 
and you've taken it over and desecrated it. And he cleans out the temple. That's, that's the setting, and I think that's important. When John picks up the narrative at that point and says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to the worship at the feast. And then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we would see, we wish to see Jesus. I should say, when we see the word Greek, you know, in the ancient world, there were some pretty simple categories. In the Jewish mind, you were either Jewish or Gentile. That still would be true. And, and often they called the Gentiles Greek, because most of the world at that time spoke Greek. The Greeks viewed you were either Greek or barbarian. Uh, because if you don't speak Greek, your language sounds kind of like bar, 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 bar. So you're a barbarian. So these may be actually, these are be Greek-speaking Gentiles. Are they actually of Greek ethnicity? Not sure. But that would be the way of saying it. In other words, they're, they're, they're Gentiles, Greek-speaking Gentiles, not Jews. And so some of them came up and, uh, with the pilgrims to, is, to Jerusalem to worship. And since they came here to worship in the Jewish temple at the Jewish feast, that tells us something about these Gentiles, these Greek-speaking Gentiles. They weren't Jews, but they were a, a, a type of Gentile that's spoken of in this time of history. There were two ways of describing Gentiles who had an interest in the Jewish faith. Some were called um, God-fearers, and others were proselytes. A God-fearer was a, a Gentile, a Greek, but he, he'd grown disgusted with the Greek polytheism and idolatry. Their gods were not really worthy of worship. They were petty and immoral. As a matter of fact, if you read about the, the legends of the, the Greek pantheon, they're not much better than we are. You know, they're, they're, they're doing wild parties, they're having fits, they're, there's bitterness and rivalry and, and, and and then they come and look at the God of the Jews, revealed in the Bible. There's one God. He is a creator of all things. So he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He is holy, holy, holy. And they said, that's a God worthy of worship. And then they also looked at the lifestyle. The, the, the Greeks had profoundly immoral lifestyles. The Jewish God called for a life of moral purity, a life of, of serving others, a life of, you know, love your neighbor as yourself is one of their commands. And, and so a God-fearer was a Gentile who honored the God of Israel, but he didn't become a, a, a Jew. He didn't convert to Judaism, but he would go to the synagogue and worship. He would go to the temple and worship, but he didn't become a Jew. A proselyte is someone who said, I'm going to give my life to following him. I'm going to become a Jew. And he would put himself under, under all the law, and he would become a Jew. So these were, Gentiles were either God-fearers or proselytes, probably God-fearers. They've come to worship. But they're seen as different, so they haven't really totally converted. But they were there to worship the God of the Bible. They were there to worship the God of, of Israel. They were there to worship at Passover. And so I must have made, must have said something to them. They must have come into that temple precincts and been disgusted. 
And what it must have spoken to them when here this Jewish rabbi cleans out that crowd and says this is supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations, for the Gentiles. And so they've been, everybody, I mean, of course, back then, everybody was talking about Jesus. His reputation was spread through the land. As they came with the pilgrims, remember, one of the things they were thinking is, will Jesus be at the, at, at, at the Passover? Will he be there in Jerusalem? Because by now, the Jewish leaders were trying to seize him and capture him. And so, there's a, so everybody was talking about it. As they're with the crowd, they heard all the discussion. Now they come to Jerusalem. They see this act that blesses them, honors their worship. And they decide they want to see Jesus. They, um, they were told they, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, why is a single... Uh, you know, pointed out that they came to Philip. Well, one reason is because they came to Philip, if that helps you. <laughs> but why did they go to Philip? We may not pick it up. We know the name Philip pretty commonly, but that was a good Greek name. Literally, it means uh, lover of horses. Um, but remember, you've heard of Alexander the Great. His father was Philip. So it was a good Greek name. Now, Philip is a Jew. But you may be no Jews who have non-Jewish names. You might know a Jew who's named Philip <laughs> or, or other names that are not Jewish, though typically they've also got a Jewish name they use. But the, the point is, he must have lived in a town, in an area where there was Greek cultural influence. In fact, we're told he lived in a town named Bethsaida. And that's a, that's a fishing village. And so uh, as, as he lived there and served uh, and grew up there, it was, he was influenced. It's right next to a Greek part of that part of the world, the place called the Decapolis. There were, Decapolis means ten cities. There were ten major Greek cities. So, so, so Philip, they must have recognized, maybe they knew who he was or just recognized, um, he understands Greek culture. He's lived close to it. So they went to Philip, maybe his name gave them comfort. And they said to him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, that's a great phrase. That, that, that should be our objective. Uh, on, the, on the podium, the pulpit we have in the fellowship hall, you usually don't get to see it, but right about here, there's a little plaque that we put on years ago, and it says, sir, we would see Jesus. Just a reminder, when someone's preaching, people want to see Jesus. They want to know about Jesus. So that's a reminder to me, that's why, hopefully why you're here. And it's a reminder to you, that's hopefully why you're here, uh, to see Jesus. And so this is a, uh, you know, they were Greeks. You know, they, you know, they couldn't maybe just walk up to Jesus. And so they, they came to Philip. Do you, could we, and I don't think just see him. They could probably see him. They wanted to meet him, maybe talk to him. Um, then Philip came, and we're told, and, and said uh, to Andrew uh, and told him about the situation. Now, I should point out, the name Andrew is also a Greek name. It means uh, something like manly, andros. Um, so, so these are the only, of the 12 disciples, the, the, these are the only two that have Greek names. He also grew up in that village, Bethsaida. 
the, the fishing village that was next door to the Greek Decapolis area. And, and um, by the way, since that was right up, Bethsaida is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they probably were doing fishing, saw Greeks while they were fishing, sold their fish to, Greek, to Greeks. So they were comfortable with the Greek culture. But Philip goes and says, um, what do we do with this? See, Jesus had made it clear. He had come as the Messiah. Well, the Messiah was the one promised to the Jewish people. Here's the deliverer. Here's the Savior that's predicted all through the Hebrew Scriptures. The word Messiah, or it means the anointed one. Christ is the, means the same thing. Here is the Savior promised to the Jews all through from Genesis to Malachi. This is the one that's been pointed to. And so he's coming to the Jewish people to say, here I am to fulfill the promises. But remember the fig tree? But the nation doesn't accept him. The problem is, he didn't fulfill their expectations. That's an ongoing problem. And in every generation, when, when, when people think about, uh, hear, hear the claims of Christ, and hear what God is like as revealed in the Bible a lot of times, well, that's not, that's not the way I think he should be. And so they say, they, they reject him. They stand off and say, no, thank you. And they kind of make up a God in their own mind. This is how God should be. Instead of saying, well, what's God like? I want to worship him. So Jesus went to the, was going to the Jewish people would he meet with these Gentiles? Uh, J.C. Rowell, I've mentioned him before, um, a bishop in the previous century said this. They remembered that at one time Jesus had said, go not into the way of the Gentiles when he commissioned his apostles. So on reflection, they probably remembered our Lord's kindness to a Canaanite mother, a Roman centurion. So they thought, well, the mission wasn't really to the Gentiles, but but he was kind to Gentiles and gave miracles. Uh, let's go tell Jesus. So, so together they, they said, let's go find Jesus and talk to him. Okay, you see the narrative here. Day after Palm Sunday, Jesus has cleansed the, the Gentile court. Gentiles want to meet with Jesus. That's when Philip and Andrew tell Jesus. Now what's the response? But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. What's the answer? Does, doesn't that strike you? It's like, um, you know, uh, you want to get together for dinner? July 4th. Is a memorable holiday. That's not what I was asking you. Uh, so it seems like Jesus isn't really addressing their point. Did he answer? Did he meet with the Greeks? Did he talk to the Greeks? We're not told. Was this said in the presence of the Greeks? What's going on here? Remember, I, I see that in Jesus, I've learned about Jesus' teaching method. It's, he's got one approach that I call teaching by confusion. 
He, he likes to say things that make you scratch your head and say, what's that all about? But if a teacher, one of the greatest obstacles is how do you engage people? If you can get people asking questions, they're engaged. And so Jesus here changes direction on them so they're thinking, what's this about? Let's, let's see if we can figure it out. Um, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now that's significant. John has been telling us all along that Jesus' hour had not come. I'll just read some quotes. John chapter 2 verse 4. Remember when, when Mary came to Jesus and said, you know, they're the running out of wine at the wedding. Jesus' response, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does, your, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 2, 4. John 7, 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. John 7, 8. You go up to the feast. I'm not yet coming up to this feast. My time has not yet fully come. And other passages go on and say similar things. But all along we've been reading in the gospel, it wasn't Jesus' time. It wasn't Jesus' time. Time to put it, be, be clear. Time to say, here is the messianic offer. Time to accomplish his mission. It wasn't time. You know, here we're going, I, I hate to say it, but two years out we're starting the election process again. And so now we're going to be more and more hearing about candidates, this and that. And you notice several of the candidates are slowly creeping in. And some of them, they'll come and say, are you going to announce your candidacy? You're sure acting like a candidate. And what is the typical answer? It's almost biblical. It's not time. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, come back, I'll talk to you later. And so Jesus up to now has been saying, it's not time. It's not time to, uh, to make my mission clear. But what does Jesus say? The hour has come. This is it. I wonder if his disciples got that. And if, again, if you've been in teaching sometimes, you make some very profound statement. And you notice they didn't bat an eye. <laughs> they missed it. Did his disciples pick this up and say, wait a minute, he's been telling us it wasn't his hour. Now he says it's time. We're not told if they got it. But what made him say that? I think the Greeks are key. Remember the fig tree? A picture of Israel. No fruit. No faith. No repentance. When the Messiah has come to them, they do not recognize, they will not accept him. But here are some Greeks. They've come to the temple. And they want to see Jesus. We are at a turning point in history. At this time, Israel is in rejection. The Messiah has come to them, and they're rejecting him. If I can kind of put it this way, not biblical language, Israel is about to be put on the shelf. 
Now God says in every generation there will be a remnant of believing Jews. He has chosen this as his people. And ultimately in the kingdom they will be restored as a nation. But for right now, they're being set on the shelf. And God's grace is turning to the Gentiles. Remember back in chapter 10 of John, uh, Jesus said, I have sheep that aren't of this fold. He was speaking of the Gentiles. And so now that the Jews are denying him and rejecting him and plotting his murder, here are the Gentiles showing, we want to see Jesus. We want to meet with him. And so that is a mark that the pivot is happening. And Jesus said, my hour has come. That the Son of Man should be glorified. Now again, his disciples often missed the point of what Jesus was saying. All along, that's what the, that was been a problem. The Jews were saying, if you're the Messiah, you're supposed to bring in the golden age. What does that look like? You're going to destroy the Romans. You've been doing a good job healing, so you're going to banish disease forever from Israel. We like the miracle of the feeding 5,000, so you're going to give us free food for life. But it wasn't happening. His disciples, here comes the glory, right? You're going to, you are going to conquer the Romans. What a great time, Passover. That's when you conquered the Egyptians. Now you're going to conquer the Romans. This is great. He now explains what he means by his glory. In verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. And here we are back to talking about agriculture again. What's going on? The glory, the hour of his glory, starts with the cross, goes to the grave, empties the grave, and culminates in his ascension. About a 40-day process there. But at the center of it is the cross that leads to the resurrection. Without the cross, there is no resurrection. Without the cross, there is no ascension. Central to his glory is what anyone at that time would say is it is the opposite of glory. The cross, brutal Roman execution. Humiliating Roman. So humiliating, the Romans forbid it to be used on a Roman citizen. Glory? Glory because at the cross, Jesus Christ paid for our sin. Our forgiveness purchased. Glory. But that's a concept that's hard to get through to his disciples. And so he says, the time has come for my glory. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. And if it dies, it produces much grain. What in the world is he talking about? Is he giving lessons on agriculture? No. He's using again a parable. We have a hard time understanding things like grain. If we're really astute, we know that wheat is how we get our bread. But often we don't think about that. But where did that wheat come from? 
They, these people knew. And he uses an illustration. You know, one of the frustrations with, one of the points with wheat is, unless you plant it, it doesn't grow. Maybe you've experienced that. We're right now in the planting season for a lot of things. Have you ever bought a packet of seeds and next year it's still sitting there? Why didn't we get any flowers? You didn't plant it. You're not going to get the flower. You're not going to get the produce unless you plant the seed. And so Jesus uses that as an illustration of himself. Unless you bury the seed, unless that seed dies, what happens is it starts dissolving, doesn't it? But that very process is necessary before soon a little, a little root starts shooting down and a little shoot starts coming up and you have a plant. And so Jesus uses that as a picture of his ministry. Life has to come from death. He cannot give life unless he's buried. No cross, no eternal life for us. The cross wasn't a mistake. It wasn't even plan B. This is why he came. He came. That's why God had to take on himself the flesh of a baby. That's why he had to grow up so that he had a body to die and be buried that he might purchase our life. It's in dying. Because when he dies, that's how he pays the penalty of our sin. The Bible makes it clear. The wages of sin is death. And, and Paul will talk about and explain it later in 2 Corinthians. God made him who knew no sin, the sinless Christ, to be sin on our behalf that we might have the, the righteousness of God. And so the incredible exchange that happens at the cross is God put our sin on the sinless one and he paid for it by dying. No life without the death. Now I actually had to do some research. I know nothing about wheat except it makes bread. Um, what happens to a wheat grain if you, if you don't plant it? Basically nothing. Under, under good circumstances, it might continue there waiting to be buried. Sometimes for decades, sometimes for centuries. They've actually found wheat grain that there was confirmed to be over a thousand years old that produced. One scientist got really technical about this and he took a bunch of grain, put it in little bottles, put it in a time capsule. And every five years, they were going to pull out a bottle and see if... And, and, and at first, they was putting, doing just as much as if it were fresh seed. Well, he died before all the wheat was used up. So others came in and, and start, continued the experiment and said, we, they kept getting the same results every five years. And so they said, well, let's extend it to 10 years. And then I think they extended it to 20 years. The last date was supposed to be 2020, but COVID messed that up and messed up everything, didn't it? And so on 2021, they opened it. Now 2040 is the next thing, they're still 
and this was planted, I think this started back in the, 19, or in the 1800s. But here's the point. It, unless it's, you do something with it, it does nothing. Unless it's buried, it will not produce. But if it produces, you know, what's nice about the grain is if you plant one seed, you get more seeds than one. How many? I don't know. But I did some research. If you take a pound of of wheat grain and plant it, it'll produce 90 pounds of wheat. I'm going to be very non-technical here. What I assume that means is one seed planted produces a plant that has 90 seeds on it. A 90 to 1 results. But unless you plant the one, you get no wheat. And so what Jesus is saying is the cross is the plan. He came to die. And he's trying to get his disciples to get their minds around it. And they're going to continue. Remember the first time he told his disciples, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter said, no, no, Jesus, don't think like that. And Peter, Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're arguing against God's plan. This is the plan. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus then turns to us. He speaks to his disciples, and maybe if the Greeks are there, to them as well. Verses 25 and 26. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, here he's not speaking of himself. Well, this does apply to himself, but he's really speaking to us. He's saying we too have to die to be useful. Every one of us needs to be planted in the earth. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What he's saying is we too have to die. Not die physically to gain the fruit, but he's speaking here about dying to self. And Jesus used that theme again and again. For example, in Luke chapter 9, Verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. What happens on a cross? You die. And follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said this, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for a soul? Jesus is saying, if you're trying to cling to this life, the things of this world, then that's all you get. It's in dying to self and following Christ and saying no to self. Recognizing I'm a sinner who needs a Savior and trusting in Christ as Savior and following Him. It's in faith and repentance turning to Christ, that's where we have a fruitful life. Fruitful for our eternity and fruitful for those around us. 
by dying to self and serving Christ. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. For he said, he who loves his life will lose it. In other words, a person who's all caught up in himself. Who was it? Was it, was it Malcolm Forbes who said, you know, the goal in life is to have more toys? You know, and I think, what he, I think the way he said is, he who, who dies with the most toys wins. And I, I've mentioned this before. I love the bumper sticker I saw. He who dies with the most toys still dies. But that's all you have to show for it. You've heard the illustration, right? That Have you ever seen a hearse with a, with a trailer hitch? You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. And so Jesus is saying, if, if you're only living for this, you're missing out on what matters most. You want the fruit of the grain, you have to plant it. I like the expression I heard and it seemed to communicate to me. A package that's all, a life that's all tied up in itself, all wrapped up in itself is an awfully small package. And Jesus is saying the way to life is death. Death to self. You've ever heard of George Mueller? George Mueller was a great, he's called sometimes the apostle of faith in the 1800s in England. God used him mightily. He, he, he was incredible. A man of faith, he had nothing. But he just trusted God and prayed. And, and he established all kinds of orphanages. He supported all kinds of mission work. And, and he, but he, he said, there, he came to a place in his life when George Mueller died. And he li- started living for Christ. And that's how he had such a fruitful life. And Jesus is warning here about the folly of living, loving this life and missing eternal life and missing a truly fruitful life. Boy, I think this is a message that, that we really need in our day. You know, you've heard the most common, we, we create new words, selfies, where people, you know, you know, there's all kinds of equipment so everyone can take pictures of what? Themselves. Why? Because that's what matters most. Me. But he who loves this life is missing out. It's in dying that the fruit comes. It's in dying to self and knowing Christ as Savior that we have eternal life. It's in dying to self that we can be so fruitful into the lives and blessings of others. But when it's all about me, then, then instead of my helping and serving you, I'm competing with you. I want the glory. I want the stuff. Instead of, how can I make your life better? And have you ever noticed that when you spend a day serving and, making an, and blessing another life, don't you come away with a sense of, that was fulfilling. But when your life is all caught up in yourself, That's where bitterness, resentment, and misery comes from. He who loves his life, Jesus said, will lose it. He who hates his life. Now, the word hate there is kind of like when he says you must hate father and mother to to love God. He's he's saying comparatively. He's saying your life has to not matter to you so you can get past yourself and think of others. Then he goes on. 
to say as well. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. What does he say to those who die to self and serve him? Where I am, there my servant will be also. One of the great blessings is Christ will be there in our life and will be there for eternity. We'll, have, we'll, we'll never be alone again. When we can die to self, then all of a sudden Christ, there's, there's room in our heart for Christ. And he'll be with us. And then he goes on to say, and if we serve him, the Father will honor us. And then he looks on to eternal life. And so Christ is saying, this is a turning point with the Greeks. The hour has come. I'm about to die. But don't, don't despair. That's where the fruit comes from. But as I am about to die on the cross, so each of us, he says, is to die to self. Serve Christ. And through that, know the honor of the Father and eternal life with him and the joy of being fruitful in others' lives. We all know the phrase from Jim Elliot that's often been quoted. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so Jesus is saying, you love this life, that's all you get. But when you lose this life, you gain more than you can imagine. So instead of the dead end of self-absorption, a life of meaning and purpose and fruitfulness. What a contrast. There was a magazine article summarizing the life of a former NCAA basketball coach. He was also a sports announcer. Throughout his colorful coaching career, he had been obsessed with the game and with winning. Years later, stricken with cancer, he came to realize the triviality of the goods and values to which he had been passionately devoted. He reported, you get sick and you say to yourself, sports mean nothing and I feel terrible. So here's a guy who, who, who accomplished it all. All the, accolade, all the accolades, all the fame, all the, 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 the win categories. But through all that, he spent very little time with his wife and his children, and he confessed. I figured I'd have 20 years in the big time. Who knows, maybe win three national titles. That's thinking small. <laughs> then pack it in at 53 or 54. I was going to make it all up to them all the time. In other words, I'm just going to be all for myself, all for my plan, all for my purpose. Get it all. And then I'll have plenty of time for wife and kids. I'd make up the time I was away. He said, it sounds so silly now. But it went on and on, that insatiable desire to conquer the world. And then came the cancer. He who loves this life, if, if this is all you have, in the end, you have nothing. But if you die to self and trust in Christ and follow him, then you're like that seed planted in the soil, that bounteous fruit in this life and the, the life to come. 
Which describes you? Are you like the Jews who frankly don't want anything to do with Christ? Or are you like these Greeks? Oh, if we could only see Jesus. We want Jesus. Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Are you, and a reminder to each of us, even as we have, it's so easy to get caught up in our own things. And one of the clues of that is we're like that fig tree, no real fruit, just leaves, just show. What did Jesus say? The answer, the way to life is death. Death to self. Life for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the challenge from Jesus, our Lord. Father, I do pray, if any here who yet to trust in him as Savior, that you would help them to see that it's not through good deeds and work that we gain your approval, but receiving the gift of life in Christ, turning from our way to his, his grace, not our works. Father, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, thank you for the reminder not to get caught up in the spin of this world, but instead, Father, to be caught up with Christ. We thank you for this, your word, and ask your blessing to our hearts in Jesus' name.